Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us today, it's always on Tuesdays, the prince of Twitter, the regent of Red State, Andrew Malcolm, my good friend and uh, longtime podcast partner. Andrew, welcome back. It's good to be here. And uh, I understand you've got a breaking story there in Texas. uh... (laughs) Yeah, we have a... We have the Lady Godiva of Texas, um, Sarah Stockner, who uh, had uh, who's running for Texas, uh, you know, Texas Railroad uh, Commission, which is a very big deal here in Texas. And uh, Karen Townsend actually wrote a great piece about this. Um, she has a at hot, tic- hot air and uh, she has a uh, TikTok video up and uh, Sarah Stockner does. Uh, that is. <laughs> yes. I want to be, yes. be careful about this. Um, that is shows her. um uh, semi-nude, I think, is the way that Karen Townsend puts it. She's wearing uh, underwear and pasties and, and on a uh, oil boom, and um, and she is she is firmly defending this as uh, as as her way of being the Lady Godiva of Texas. And I'm actually going to interview her. She should be on the next podcast, uh, assuming that it doesn't fall through. I talked to her on the phone. She says uh, very. Uh, very kind and was more than willing to talk to us. Um, she actually liked Karen's post, as it turns out, um, even though Karen was uh, a, a little skeptical about her chances in the primary here. Uh, and that's, I mean, we're already underway here in Texas, in the Texas primary. Well, I, I'm i trusting that Karen has the link in her post. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I actually edited that piece for Karen, and, and I can assure you that we, um, yeah, we made sure that the readers weren't going to be, uh, weren't going to have to go hunting around for that too much. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, clicks by any name. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story. No, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, imagine that, a political story that has humor and fun in it. Exactly. I mean, that, Look, years and years ago, actually many years ago, I did a, a, a feature story for the New York Times on Beverly Harrell, who was a madam in, in uh, Nevada, where, of course, prostitution is legal outside of Vegas. Right. And uh, she was running for the state legislature, and I wrote a, a profile about her. She's a big local community supporter. She bought ads in the on the senior page of the high school yearbook and in the school newspaper. And and, uh, and then I also interviewed her opponent. It was a Republican who, who said, you know, this is not the easiest thing in the world to run against the matter where it's legal. <laughs> yeah. So had a lot of fun with that, uh, with that post. That was, that was, that, and we were not customers, but she, nonetheless, she gave us uh, a t-shirt. And I had it, the Cottontail Ranch, and I had it for a long time. <laughs> well, it's always, you know, that's that's the, uh, you know, the fun thing is collecting all the souvenirs from, from your That's uh, right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of less fun topics, actually, in today's podcast. And um, as we're speaking here, um, Russia has, um, Russia has decided to recognize the independence of the separatists uh separatist regions in ukraine in donetsk and luhansk the eastern ukraine and the donbass region um uh vladimir putin maybe an hour earlier than this got up and gave a sort of a uh, angry speech about 
Russian history and how Ukraine really isn't a country anyway. And uh, and uh, Kiev is just a Western puppet. And it was madness to let the former Soviet republics just simply walk away from Russia at the uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, I bring this up. Um, in part because it's it's the big pressing story today, and certainly is, we're going to be chewing over it tomorrow as well. But it's also the the Russia Ukraine crisis plays a part in your column. How desperate? How here's how desperate Democrats are already are over this year's midterms. And so I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and then how you see it playing into uh, Democrats' positions in the midterms. Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, this is a very familiar pattern, and probably a lot of people won't remember, but in 2008, in the summer of 2008, Putin sent uh, troops in, and they took over two provinces, <laughs> two right. provinces in Georgia, uh, and they're still there. Uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, right, exactly. Sort of uh, taking over your neighbor, controlling your neighbor countries, piecemeal. So... Um, I guess it might be surprising for Biden's State Department, but this kind of a move, uh, which isn't an, an invasion. So Jen Psaki today said that they were going to come out with some uh, an executive order this very afternoon, Ed, to uh, uh, block anybody from having any economic relations with people in those two Ukrainian provinces. So, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, which we weren't. All, I mean, honestly, we 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 don't have any real economic engagement in Luhansk and Donetsk, and we haven't at least for eight years because of the separatists being there. So this is right. more. This is a little bit more um, demonstrative than substantive. I, I I don't want to say performative because I think it's demonstrative, and I think performative might be the wrong word here, but it's very careful. And it kind of leads, yeah. it's very calibrated, right? That's that's an even better word. It's very carefully calibrated here. It's incremental. Um, because in the end, right now, there's really no change in the status quo. Those separatists were backed by the Russian military, well, Russian auxiliaries, let's uh, proxies, Russian proxies um, in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. If Putin is going to recognize their independence, then he's probably going to arrange to send regular Russian military into Donbass to back that up. But as long as he doesn't cross over that partition and, and over any of the other Ukrainian borders, I kind of think that he's banking that the West and especially the U.S. will allow it to be sort of a status quo slash fait accompli without without escalating matters at this point. And I'm wondering if that partition wasn't what he really had in mind all along. Could be. Um, the West did absolutely nothing in 2008 when he did that in Georgia. Uh, yeah. And Obama slapped some uh, sanctions on Russia when he took over another piece of Ukraine, the Crimea, in 2014. Um, and uh, nothing has changed. He's still still there, right? Uh, and they have Russian passports and so on. This is a uh, an incremental game that uh, you're that a very savvy, wily Putin is playing. Uh, and um, 
the bottom line is he has spent the last several years hardening Russia against economic sanctions from the West. They've built up their foreign currency exchanges and hardly uh, any of it is anymore in euros. Um, he's gotten their banks, uh, the loans, uh, business, corporate loans have been changed over. Um, and so they're not in dollars anymore and they're not in euros. Uh, so it, it's, uh, there are going to be impacts, but the bottom line, and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in my column at Red State, the bottom line is sanctions don't work. It's, it's all, a, uh, talk about performative, it's all, nobody's sanctions, no president's sanctions work. They worked a little bit with South Africa 30 years ago but they don't work anymore now. I mean, is, um, is Maduro uh, gone in Venezuela? No. Are the mullahs gone? Have they stopped their nuclear program? No. Has North Korea stopped? No, in fact, it started it up again once Biden got in office. It's nuclear and it's missile program. Um, so the sanctions, it's a photo op for an American president. They don't really mean anything. And bottom line is after all these years of creating trouble, if Putin and his cronies still have any financial holdings in the West, they don't deserve to have them anymore because they know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, it's political theater, and it's too bad that there isn't some lever uh, to use, but I'm sure Biden will milk this for some uh, PR value. Well, I mean, there is. But it's one that Biden really doesn't want to use for other reasons, and that is the price of oil. When America was when when America was a net exporter of oil, a, a status by the way that's going to disappear here in the next couple of months, um, then we were able to keep the price of oil low, and it kept Putin's it kept Putin from getting enough resources to do things like this, and. The fact that oil is, well, first off, oil is going to go up now just because of the conflict, So because it's all futures-based. And right now, investors are are, are scared about uh, potential shortages, so they're buying up a lot, large blocks of oil futures, so it's driving the prices way up. All that does is put money in Putin's pockets. So just the fact that the scare exists here is benefiting Putin. Because it's making him a lot, making him and Russia a lot wealthier than they or, ordinarily would be under the circumstances. But if we were still, if we were, if we were in a drill baby drill mode, um, and not worrying about um, so much about the climate change agenda, we would be in a much better strategic position here to keep Putin from being able to yeah, exactly, this. exactly. And uh, this is another way that. Uh, Biden has totally screwed up the way he screwed up the southern border mess. Uh, you know, we had energy independence with with Trump. We were exporting oil. We were exporting liquid national ga natural gas um, and drilling and finding more and keeping the prices low. And Biden came in and for um, I assume green reasons. He killed the Keystone Pipeline while endorsing Putin's Nord Stream Pipeline. Of course, he changed his mind now. Um, and the 
cutting back on oil leases, canceling some. And as a result, the gas prices have gone up. That's part of the theme of my column that we can get back to. But but uh, so he's actually Biden has actually weakened the American position vis-a-vis Putin. And Putin is in the catbird seat. He's, 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 he knows it. He actually caused it. And then Biden played right into his hand. Uh, and I don't think uh, Biden actually minds that the, he's never going to buy gas himself anymore. The Secret Service uh, toddles him everywhere. So he doesn't care if the gas price in some places has gone up uh, touching $6 um, because that will perhaps drive people more to buy electric cars. So Well, right, but uh, where does electricity come from to charge those cars? Oh, that's right. Exactly right. He doesn't <laughs> think about that. So, so, so every night when people plug their cars in, eventually, uh, we have blackouts. I mean, it's it's yeah. just it's just crazy. It's counterproductive. It's stupid. And um, I hope that voters realize these interconnectivities. You know, the polls indicate that the Democrats are in trouble uh, come midterms in November. And actually, that was the point of the column, which right. is how how desperate Democrats are uh, at this point because they're actually talking about. Are you guys sitting down cutting taxes? They're not really cutting them for good, but they're talking about suspending the federal gasoline tax. Ooh, boy. So that's 18 cents. Well, Pennsylvania's gas tax is 57.6 cents. So 18 cents off. And it reminds you of what a big deal Biden tried to make last summer. That the July 4th cookouts were 16 cents cheaper than the right. year before under Trump. And there was, we had so much fun on Twitter those days in August or July, uh, everybody talking about how they were going to spend their 16 extra cents. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it goes even beyond that because, I mean, first off, when you we've tried this before and it never works. Uh, you know, you've you've got um, I think it was Larry Summers called it a goofy gimmicky idea that just it simply isn't going to isn't going to impact inflation at all. And it's very similar to the move. I think it was in December. I think it was mid-December or it was late November That's where, right. with the uh, release of 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. 50 million barrels of oil is two days consumption here in the United States. And it had. No effect whatsoever because, you know, you had a, a slight dip in prices and then two weeks later it was back up and ever since then it's still off to the races. I mean, nobody remembers yeah, that. that exactly. yeah. Well, Clinton did it uh, and it's it's a waste. It's, it's phony. Right. It's absolutely phony. It's like sanctions. They don't do anything. But uh, Biden is so into appearances, how, what it looks like he's doing. And uh, hopefully people uh, won't fall for it come November 8th. Well, I, I think that they're falling for it less. And I think it's because inflation has really woken people up. And I hesitate to use the word woke because it means so many other things these days. But <laughs> Well, then you can say awakened. They have awakened to the fact that these, these sort of gimmicks and, and the stimulus was a gimmick, especially that third round of stimulus, which really triggered the big inflationary wave. I wouldn't say it was the, it was the 
complete cause of that wave. I wouldn't even say it's the structural cause of that wave, but it certainly was the catalyst for it. And all it did was it got people to move up their consumption and it complicated the already breaking down supply chains that we're still dealing with to this to this moment. And jack the prices. And jack the prices up. Right. I mean that's 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 how you get that big inflationary wave. Um and right now, I mean, you're not seeing any other, you're not seeing any real solutions to this. Instead, you see Democrats still focusing on trying to pass Build Back Better, which is this progressive spendorama. And it's mostly on issues that voters don't care about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, if, if you wanted to screw things up, you would be doing what Biden has been doing and is doing. Uh, look at the Afghan troop withdrawal. I mean, right. There's no, I can't imagine any way that you could screw that up any worse. And the fact of the matter is that thousands of our allies, uh, vulnerable Afghans, and several thousand Americans are still stuck there. And Biden, to his eternal shame, in my opinion, uh, isn't doing anything about it. And our media, to its eternal shame, is not calling them out on it, except no. you, except you, Ed. Well, I mean, I'm, Jim Garrity's been on it, too. And, you know, our friend John Andrasik from Fight for Fighting has really tried to shine a light on this. You know, I feel like um, <clears throat> I, I feel like I'm not even doing enough. Right. Because I, yeah, th it's something that requires a constant a constant you know, spotlight. Right. On. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, I, I don't think he's going to change. I'm not, I don't think he's smart enough to change. And he's got so much pride. Uh, I mean, if he, if he's still calling the Afghan withdrawal success, so I, I don't know if you're, if you're that demented, um, I don't, I guess you can't be convinced of anything, but, and, <laughs> and of course, uh, the, uh, Biden a year ago endorsed while he killed the Keystone pipeline here that hurt domestic consumption, he supplies, he uh, endorsed uh, Putin's Nord Stream 2, which is going to, one, weaken the, the strategic alliance of NATO because uh, it will give Biden leverage, energy leverage on much of Europe, especially Germany, give them pause for making a big stink when he does something because he could just turn off their, their gas. Um, and uh, two, it's going to hurt American sales of LNG to Europe because uh, they're going to be able to get Russian gas easier. So right. another way that you screw things up, um, you know, you have to think there's an element of intent here. I mean, it, it, it's just, I, I'm not, I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but the stupidity comes <laughs> powerfully to the fore here. <laughs> it does. You know, we've got a couple of weeks to go before the State of the Union address. I think we got three oh. three podcasts left to go before the State of the Union address. But I mean, this is a good time to bring this up. I mean, uh, and and we'll have more on on that as it gets closer. But I am not sure what the strategy of the State of the Union address. I, I don't know if you saw this. It was late last week when Washington Post was, or no, it was, I think it was the Hill said that Ron Klain was going to Senate Democrats and saying, 
you know, Joe Biden's State of the Union address is really going to turn things around. It's really going to turn things around in the midterms. I'm thinking, said no one ever for any president. I mean, the union address doesn't have anything to do with electoral uh, electoral success. It never has. But I'm kind of curious as to what you think might be coming, if that's what Ron Klain is slinging around Capitol Hill. Well, their favorite thing is uh, is freebies. So, uh, And so little of what's in the State of the Union ever comes to pass. Uh, but so, once again, we're back to appearances. Sounds good. So Biden gets up there for 80 minutes of blather. Uh, if he can last that long, maybe he'll make it shorter. Uh, and uh, the Democrats who are left, who aren't retiring in the Congress, will applaud him heartily. And uh, we'll see what the ratings are. But uh, I, there's the polls all of the polls internally, and you know better than, than I do on this, uh, show that he's, it's not just a popularity contest. He's very weak and underwater in subject areas, uh, area after area, the economy, the pandemic, professional. Uh, it's just people are disapproving of his job. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't think a speech, uh, it's gonna, even one that has his cohorts cheering is going to make that much difference. Uh, but McLean has to try to calm down Democrats who were close to panicking over the polls and the fact that uh, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. So we'll, we'll get some more promises that won't happen. So, you know, given the, given the series of events that have gone on. I mean, Ukraine certainly being one of them, but inflation and crime spiking upwards. I'm still a little mystified at the idea that you can sell this as a messaging problem. And that was clearly what Klain was arguing, right? And that was what the Hill yeah. was reporting is that this is just a messaging problem. You see, um, uh, there was something I think uh, that Tammy Duckworth, who was um, uh, a, uh, the senator from Illinois, right? Illinois. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> saying, you know, well, we got checks and pockets. That's the message that we have to sell in the midterms. Look, the checks and pockets came a year ago and they got spent a year ago. And now you've got seven and a half percent inflation eroding buying power. <laughs> and it's going up every month, by the way, while wages are not. And you've got crime going up. You, you've got, you know, pandemic restrictions that are still in place that people are, that even Democratic governors now are bailing on. Those are performance issues. And, and I think that the idea, and I think this is something that you kind of allude to in your column at Red State, is that it's sort of a, uh, a disconnect from reality here is that Democrats have sort of convinced themselves that they're brilliant and are convinced that voters will think they're brilliant when they're not delivering on anything. Right. Well, they're living in this inside this myth that America has become progressive. And it is. Yeah. It isn't. You know, you don't you don't turn the Queen Elizabeth on a dime and you just don't turn America's uh, political proclivities that sharply. And I don't think it ever will turn. But, you know, there are waves of. Um, of, of populism and change in in what voters appear to like, but the polls show that Biden is losing the people that that 
um, gave him victory, right. which is which is the soft, the soft voters, the independents, uh, and uh, he's losing them. And uh, he's also, I think, uh, you have the numbers recently, uh, losing on the generic ballot, unusually hard. Yeah, Republicans are are leading on the generic ballot. Last I saw RCP, I think it was like three point eight points. When Republicans are doing well when they get inside a minus five, right? If they're at minus four, yeah. minus three, they're doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, it's looking it's looking bad. And there was the, I think it was Politico uh, was looking at the morning consult poll, and or a Democrat it was excuse me it was a Democratic uh, poll, uh, internal poll, which showed that on culture issues, uh, it was more like a R plus fourteen in the swing yeah. states. No. I mean, they're, they've really lost the thread with voters, and I don't think that they're recognizing. The Washington Post had something today talking about exactly what you just said, this myth of a progressive majority that they're buying into. It simply doesn't exist, and they're warning that they're going to lose the 2024 cycle as well as the 2022 cycle. It almost sounds like they're they're chalking up 2022 and saying, you know, um, time time to look time to look for damage control down the road. Well, it's still more than a thousand days left of Biden, but uh, the good the, the good news is that if Republicans can take at least one House, if not both, and I think both are possible, right? Uh, that stalls any of this crap agenda that he's got that uh, that uh, AOC has and all the others that. Uh, belief that this is suddenly a progressive country uh and uh, that's just not going to go anywhere you know americans have this uh, uh, voters seem to have this flirtation with a unified government one party government they did it from 2008 with the enthusiasm over obama until 2010 and then they spanked uh the democrats lost 63 seats the worst since the 1930s uh, in the House, and uh, they gain, the Republicans gains gain Senate seats. Um, you know, even Ronald Reagan lost seats in 1982, and that was over the economy right. because people were still annoyed over inflation. Uh, and it's the first term of a new president, and it becomes a preliminary. It could even be a premature verdict on the president, but. Uh, they pay a price. The average loss has been in the 20s, but I, for uh, the incumbent president's party in the House, but uh, I think it's going to be worse this time, at least as things look now. Well, as things look now, you can find out more uh, about how things look now by reading Andrew's column over at Red State. Uh, but right now, We've just got a couple of minutes left to go over the jokes of the week, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I got Lay them on us. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, Russia's, uh, this is Conan. Uh, these are older ones, replays. I call them the Conan uh, replay. Russia's favorite Olympic men's hockey team was eliminated today by Finland. Then an hour later, Russia's men's hockey team was eliminated by Putin. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. There's uh, this is after the what was it, 2016 or 18, the Winter Olympics in Russia. 
2014. 2014. Yeah. Jimmy Fallon says the closing Olympic ceremony Sunday, Vladimir Putin was like, it has been a fun time, but I'm sad to see everyone escape. <laughs> <laughs> And let's see, another Conan one. He says, Starbucks has just launched a home delivery service. It's perfect for anyone too lazy to walk one block in any direction. <laughs> perfect. That's me. I'm the target market there. <laughs> Some of these are really funny, and they hold their, they hold their laughter. Here's one more. Um, um, Jimmy Fallon, he says, a new report finds 16% of Americans under age 24 do not have a job. There's even a name for this group, art history majors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and journalism majors. All right, so uh, <laughs> Andrew Malcolm, of course, uh, the, the dean of journalists, of American journalists, the Prince of Twitter and the Regent of Red State. You can find him <laughs> at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. Andrew, thanks again so much for being with you know us what? this I'm week. I'm going to be at CPAC this weekend, so we can talk ah, about that next week. Definitely want to do that. I won't be. So, yeah, I'll, I'll do a full there goes our, There goes our Friday dinner. Yeah, Dog, I know. I know. Next year. I next year. Next year. Yeah. I'll be there next well, year. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. So I give a report on that. All right. Thanks, That's Edward. Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show, the podcast edition. Joining me now, my great friend, and your great friend, too, if you don't live in the Washington, D.C. bubble, Selena Zito uh, from selenazito.com. She writes at uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. She writes at the Washington Examiner, and uh, she's all over every place except the uh, academic bubbles. Uh, Selena, I I'd ask you where you're at at the moment, but um, maybe maybe that's, a, maybe that's not a great idea at, at this precise <laughs> point. And uh, I'm not sure, Selena, are you there? I'm here. Okay, great. I'm now, I'm now here. Okay, well- Sorry. You're... No, that's, that, I mean, this is part of the fun of, of being on the road, right? Is the fact that, you know, sometimes the cell service isn't great, but, uh, but you know, you get a chance to meet all, so you get a chance to meet all, all of the best people, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, there was a hill and a glen, and I'm not quite sure what happened. <laughs> well, we know what happened. 5G isn't, uh, 5G isn't everywhere after all. Um, <laughs> Selena, you've got two great stories out this week and and i think they speak to a larger issue that democrats are just starting to realize which is that culture matters as well as economics and um and uh, your first piece the first piece i want to talk to you about is uh, uh, new firearm owners are shaking up go gun culture and american politics um this is i think uh, just one aspect of the cultural um miss that the governing party at the moment is really missing in the rest of America? Well, I have a piece coming up this week that sums it up perfectly. It's the culture, stupid. And um, I think that the Democrats, while totally and completely sort of aligned uh, with corporations, institutions, and... Um, uh, academia and Hollywood, while they're all sort of on the same cultural level, 
they they have moved too they've moved too far to the left of the rest of the culture. They made the assumption because everyone thinks like that 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 everyone thinks like them. Right. And while their peers do, the ones that live in the sort of same super zip codes that they live in, the people that buy their products or they put their butts in their seats or they attend their their children attend their schools or they go to their movies are not in the same place um, that they are. And, and, and for a while, we have not rebelled against it. But I would argue since 2006, that relationship has been fracturing. And we saw it begin in 2016, but nothing broke it more than the pandemic. Right. And, and, and I think that uh, the pandemic, uh, maybe the riots in the cities with the George Floyd, um, yep, yep. I think that would be everything the other inflection point. Yep. I mean, that, yeah, everything and, that went. Yeah. So I, I, I want to get to the, the gun owners here, but I do want to mention that the Washington Post and I'm talking about we're talking on Monday here. The Washington Post had an interesting article out today uh, from William uh, about a study from William Galston and um Elaine Kamark, I think, or Kamark, um, who famously did the the autopsy after the Dukakis debacle in 1988, um, who come out with another one now, saying precisely what you're saying is that Democrats have deluded themselves into thinking that there's a progressive majority. They've deluded themselves into thinking that their culture is the culture that everyone else ascribes to, and they're about to lose not just the midterms but the next presidential cycle because they're talking past voters that actually matter and that a base turnout won't help. No, they're, they're, they have pushed people, it's really fascinating, they have pushed people center-right that normally wouldn't be center-right. And, and they have made a lot of assumptions on culture because they are talking in an echo chamber, but have not spent, outside of conducting someone like third group, third group conducting a, a focus group, they're really out of touch with their consumers. Right. I mean, this is, and you see Frank Luntz, I think it was um, yesterday saying that uh, Democrats and Joe Biden are really turning into another Jimmy Carter moment here, which was, had, I would argue, similar issues, but not as dramatic as we're seeing right now. Yeah. I mean, it has, again, uh, to your point, Everything that had to do with the pandemic, including the riots with George Floyd, including the spike in crime, including the overreach by government, all of that, which sort of all happened um, in this, you know, sort of big flurry of, um, of um, a rapidly increasing uh, government control and, and sort of government attitudes has just really changed people. People are finally turning around and saying, whoa, wait a minute. We right. do not share your values. These, these, we do not share your values. And the virtues that you aspire, aspire to are not virtues of, uh, are not American virtues, are not, um, and, and this, it's just cratered. Everything has sort of fallen apart. And I think one of the big issues of this, and it's a theme that runs through both of your most recent pieces uh, as we're talking here, and again, talking with Selena Zito, um, is the idea of self-sufficiency. 
And that is really starting to express itself in the fire in, in the profile, I guess you would say, of firearms owners. And I think that I mean I think that trend was already underway, well underway prior to the pandemic, yeah, yeah. prior prior to uh, prior to the, uh, the the big spike in crime. But those two things have really reoriented people because they understand that the way police the way policing is being done right now, they have to figure out how to protect themselves because the police simply won't be able to do it. That's absolutely right. So gun ownership has become this multi-layer thing. It always has been. However, because of the new alignment of people that have become gun owners, um, what we're seeing is, you know, an awareness, not only of the empowerment of being able to protect ourselves, but to be able to take our, our, protect our families and our homes, but also the ability to be able to feed ourselves, right? right. That is some, that's, that is an aspect. Like, uh, the hunting licenses have been decreasing for the past 30 years. Well, that's all changed, and it is now increasing. Why is it increasing? Because people have looked around, and they see the vulnerabilities in the food chain. They see the vulnerabilities in the supply chain. They uh, and and they wonder. They they have they recognize. They recognize that they should be part of taking care of themselves, and they need to be responsible to take care of themselves. And that's why also guns. There has been an increase in guns because more people are learning to, or, or more people are buying guns to go hunting. And along with, and I think this is a really important aspect. Along with that increase in hunting lessons, there's also an increase. There, there is a uh, parallel increase in people learning how to uh, are taking uh, lessons to learn how to prop uh, safety lessons to properly handle a gun, and and so there is a responsibility that these people acknowledge that this isn't just something I go and buy and you know I'm just going to try it out and see how it all works. They're actually being incredibly responsible about it. And that's what gun ownership, 99% of it, has always been in right. this country. Exactly. It's a great point to make, too, because that really is. It's about self-sufficiency, and it's about, it's about responsibility. And for most of our country's history, those two things went together. You, you were self-sufficient, and you learned responsibility through self-sufficiency. And, and it's only in the last few decades— and I'd argue probably since the Great Depression and accelerating through the Great Society, that the idea of self-sufficiency has largely sort of faded back into uh, the idea of social safety nets, which aren't necessarily a bad thing in and of themselves, but the dynamic that it produces is a population that's just simply less self-sufficient, more reliant on government services. And now that we're seeing government services, especially in you know, policing being unreliable, uh, you are starting yeah. to see a return of this self, a return to the values of self-sufficiency. That's absolutely correct. And so when you, all the things that we've been talking to, you know, everyone often says uh, um, culture follows politics. I disagree. I think that politics follows culture. And the country has been moving center-right. I'm not saying Republican, but I am saying center-right because it is, people are moving more in that direction. 
and the culture is telling us everything if we would just pay attention. Now, you and I are paying attention. You have very smart listeners. They're paying attention. But this is going to be something that the larger news organizations and um, political parties, both left and right, are going to say, well, when did that happen? How did they become Republicans? Well, because you pushed them there. Right. Because you you gave them no room. You know, one of the things that was always important to organizations like the the NRA was that they had a decent amount of Democrats who all were were also supportive of the Second Amendment. It can't be just one party. And unfortunately, that is what happened. Fifteen years ago, there were plenty of members in the Democratic Party in the NRA. Right. And, and, and I think that what you're seeing here is the sort of the, the, the move. There, there's a couple of different, there's lots of moving parts to this. One of the moving yeah. parts that the Washington Post mentions, which I think is really interesting, and I know that you've done a lot of writing on this, is where Hispanic voters are at. And oh, this, yeah. I mean, this is what the, what the Galston uh, Camark study uh, was talking about as well. They they actually focused apparently fairly heavy on this, heavily on this, according to the Post report. And what they're saying is that, and I was I've been talking about this. I don't know if I've been writing about it as much as I've been talking about it in other people's shows, uh, but but what I've been saying is that you know based on what I learned when I was out, you know, trying to be Selena Zito Jr. Uh, when I was doing my book. <laughs> um, one of the things I learned is that, you know, the Hispanic block of voters is really um, probably more like prior immigration waves. And rather than being uh, rather than being similar to the to black voters, which has a completely different historical dynamic. Right. And, and a completely right. different um there's been a completely different strategy where, where solidarity is has been a necessity for black voters ever since the end of the Civil War, at least through the end of the, the, the primary civil rights period in the, in the mid-1960s and maybe into the 1970s. Um, other, immigration, other immigration waves resulted in solidarity at first and then diversification later as they, uh, as they gained economic traction in the United States. And Galston and Kymark are saying the Hispanics are going to be a lot more like the Italians. And what happened with the Italians? The Italians all became Republicans. Now, that's something I know. That's an argument I know that's going to appeal to you, Selena Zito, as much as it appeals to me uh, based on my mother's side of the family. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, Hispanics are not
And the Democrats have missed that. And they've tried to make them into having, as you pointed out, the black voter. However, they don't have the same experiences right. as, a, the, um, as, as the black voter. And this is, I can't describe to you how insulting this is. I have been writing about the Hispanic voter and sort of their, their move to center right since 2015. And I, that's where I began to see the change in the um, in, in sort of their self-identity and the realization that they're kind of mad at the way that the Democrats look at them and as part of why they have moved away from the Democratic Party. And yep. the other thing is, what's this Latinx thing? <laughs> yeah, the Latinx like, thing, yeah. Off. No, no one that is Hispanic even knows how to pronounce that word. What is that? That's stupid. It's yeah. so insulting. It's it's such a condescending, you know, top-down imposed term that it's it, it continuously pulls disastrously. James Carville's been talking about it a lot lately too. Is that you, this is this is faculty lounge talk, and and that is what's burying Democrats is that they have bought fully into faculty lounge thinking. Um, I, I want to. We've got a few minutes left. I want to get to your other piece because I think it, it's it's culturally speaking in the in the same zone. So it, it speaks to some of the same issues here. Um, your piece on micro scholarships highlighting the lost virtues of hard work and sweat. I mean, I think this is again. It's sort of a a, a cultural shift away from the academia driven uh, notions of outcomes and back to. That sort of self-sufficiency, that sort of trades-based workforce that could could really do anything uh, that we kind of sent packing in the 1970s and 1980s. Yeah, so for, for at least two generations, we have told kids to go to, we and told parents, send your kid to university, they're going to be a failure. They have to go to university, they're going to be a failure. And, that, and sort of looking down at these um careers that i mean without them without welders without plumbers without carpenters without um you know hvac workers nothing that you love would work um and and these are wealth high paying jobs and and we've just told them we've just told our children's children you don't want that job and there's just been and we've sort of made work in the traditional sense, and the enemy, right? And, and 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 what Mike Rowe is doing through through his foundation and offering these scholarships to um, young people, deciding to make you know the um, the trades their career. He's it, it, it's just like so aspirational to interview all of these young people, and their lives are incredibly changed. And they have such a sense of self because of this path that they decide to take, to take that they had no idea existed. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, I mean, Mike Rowe is a great example of this. And, and I think he's, he's actually just one of, a, a, a very charming guy. Also, you know, just a great example of what hard work and trade, uh, trades knowledge can, uh, can do for you. But, you know, Rick Santorum was talking about this a decade ago. 
um, yeah. more than a decade ago, right? I mean, I remember the, yep. the 2012 election cycle, and he was talking about the fact that we need to get more of these trade schools opened up, uh, divert kids who aren't going to do well in an academic setting, but who might do brilliantly in the trades might get really great paying jobs, do much better than uh, than what they might do trying to slug their way through a very expensive four years at university. Uh, so this has been some time coming, but I think it's starting to resonate now, maybe especially because of um, of the gap that we're seeing here, the the um, the labor gap. Absolutely. It's just been, you know, it, I mean, where I come from, um, it was still, it was con still considered virtuous to go to a trade school. However, you go to other pockets of the country and you can't find trade schools and or you find trade schools and nobody's attending them. That has been, again, part of the, the culture gives us hints, whether it's guns, whether it's uh, church attendance, whether it's uh, looking at the ratings in, 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 at the Super Bowl or the Hollywood events, or, or whether looking at this um, growth in gun sales or looking at this change in attitude about work. The politics is going to follow culture in this, and, and people will be surprised. But, you know, you and I and your very smart listeners could say, yeah, we saw this coming. We saw it coming. Selena Zito sees it coming because Selena Zito's out in the country where everyone lives. She is always in the middle of somewhere, and you can always find out where she's at by going to selenazito.com and, uh, and, uh, and, and making sure that you're keeping up with her work at the Washington Examiner and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Selena, great talking to you again. We're going to do this more often now that we're doing the podcast, I hope. I've like once a week, man. I'm in. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us is my good friend, Myra Khan Adams. She is the executive director of signfromgod.org, signfromgod.org. And we're going to talk about signfromgod.org. We're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin and the... And not the exhibit of the Shroud, but the exhibit about the Shroud of Turin at the Museum of the Bible. That's coming up on February 26th. Uh, Myra, welcome back. Great to talk to you again. And I know that this has really been uh, the focus of most of your energies um, over the last uh, few years, really. We've talked about this on my previous show uh, a couple of times. That is correct. Thank you for having me. Um, and for viewers who are not familiar with the Museum of the Bible, it is in Washington, D.C. It is uh, a huge building, just about four blocks um, near the Capitol. And uh, it's a spectacular museum that uh, opened up in uh, November of 2017. It's owned by the Green family, who have spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars building and filling this museum with uh, artifacts, precious artifacts uh, and antiquities. And uh, it's, it's, in fact, this November will be, the Museum of the Bible will be celebrating its fifth anniversary. Wow. So, um, yeah. And Fodor's had said it's one of the best museums in Washington. Uh, so definitely, yeah, if you're in D.C., check it out. Museum of, museumofthebible.org, by the way, is where you can find um, the website for the Museum of the Bible. And again, signfromgod.org is 
Myra's organization's website where you can find out lots and lots and lots of information about the Shroud of Turin. And I mean, this is one of the reasons why you founded signfromgod.org, why, 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 why it, that organization was created, Myra, was because there have been a number of developments about the Shroud of Turin over the last few years. I think people, when they think about the Shroud of Turin, they reflect back on, I think it was 40 years ago or so, where there was, um, I can't remember the news organization that did a sort of in-depth look at it. It may have been CBS, um, where the, the carbon-14 dating from the late 1970s was saying, well, yeah, this that is... Was, yeah, 19, the 1981 carbon dating. Yeah, yeah 1981 I'm sorry, carbon 1988. Dating. I'm sorry, 1988 carbon dating is when it happened. Oh, okay. My goodness. Okay, I thought it was earlier than that. But where it... Were, it, it attempted uh, where the initial results of this were, well, this isn't as old as people think it is. There's been a lot of developments, both scientific and, and um, historical about the Shroud of Turin that uh, signfromgod.org has been uh, patiently um, collating and making available to the public. Yes, that is true. And uh, what's exciting thing is the Museum of the Bible is going to be hosting an exhibition about the Shroud of Turin that opens up February 26th and runs through July, that runs through July 31st. So um, that is something that everybody should see because um, you will learn more about the Shroud of Turin, its history, how it mirrors the gospels and all the amazing details that make the Shroud the most studied artifact in the world. There is nothing that comes close to how how often and how uh, in-depth there have been studies about the Shroud of Turin and scientists to this day still cannot figure out how the image of a crucified man ended up on this 14 foot by three foot piece of linen. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing story. <clears throat> I've always been a little fascinated by it, even before really becoming, you know, deeply active in my faith, uh, you know, because I, I was sort of a adult returnee to the to the Catholic faith. I hadn't left it, but I just wasn't doing anything with it until my mid-20s. Uh, but even before that, I found the Shroud of Turin to be a, a fascinating um, artifact, if nothing else, right? And and I think that, the, I mean, I, I am certain that you get lots of inquiries about this from people who, of, of all sorts of different faith commitments, right? And all sorts of different faiths for that matter as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, because of the Shroud's mysteries uh, that cannot be explained, and there are a host of them, that literally science has no idea how it happened. Um, so because of the mysteries, um, the Shroud is extremely controversial. And because it has to do with Jesus Christ um, and is potentially what many believe, I believe it, millions around the world believe it, it is the, bur the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Um, there's going to be haters. There's going to be people that are just going to make fun of it and say, how can that be true? It has to be fake. But yet when, the, when actual scientists um, try to explain the myriad of mysteries, uh, there is no explanation. And in 1978, there was what was called STIRP. It was the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And they, and they concluded, and that was the biggest, the first really and only up to this point, major comprehensive hands-on study of the Shroud of Turin. And they concluded that this, that the image on the shroud was not the product of an artist. 
And uh, that made heads explode, as you can imagine. And then in 1988, um, they did the carbon dating, and that was very political. The way they did it, they, they literally ignored agreed upon protocols. They ended up taking one little teeny piece from the outer edges where the shroud had been held up for centuries. They used to go on display, and they literally hold it up for centuries. And they took a, they took, that's the little spot on one of the left-hand corners that they that they examined they cut that one spot into three little pieces and sent it to three different labs and then then there's been proof actually much scientific uh, to do over whether or not that piece was actually added later as a backing cloth because um, they concluded right. that that the shroud was dated from you know from the 12 to 1300s um and people were like that's impossible because there's a photographic mystery of the sh on the shroud and that photographic mystery makes one to conclude that photography wasn't invented for like another 500 years. So how could the shroud, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. I happen to have it here. Um, this right here down at the bottom is the shroud. Um, it's actually, I'm gonna hold it up like this. You can see better the, uh, right. the actual face of, of Jesus. Um, but this right here is what it looks like with your, with your naked eye. It's a mirror, front and back mirrored image. But then in 1898, the shroud was photographed for the first time. They applied the new modern technology of photography to the shroud in 1898. And what happened was uh, the man that actually took the first picture, his name was Secundo Pia. He is in his dark room and he is developing these glass plates because you know these huge cameras with a glass plate is, right. was, the, was the photography technology at the time. And he discovered upon in the upon development that this is the image he ended up seeing. This is the image that ended up being developed, and that is what we call a photographic negative. And what that what that led people to believe is that the shroud itself, this this part right here, is actually a negative. But when it's photographed, it becomes a positive, which makes it a photographic negative. And this, of course, is the blown up more is, is the actual face. And, but this face was never seen until 1898. And this is actually the face that, that was on the, um, the shroud, um, let's see if I, um, was on the shroud originally. This is what people saw up until 1898. And what's, what's even more interesting is when, it, when he first developed this, uh, this picture, uh, the powers that be in turn were like, whoa, what is this? They, it's like, they were totally confused and they kind of just, <laughs> said goodbye, have a nice day. Uh, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Uh, and then the next time the shroud was photographed was in 1931. Obviously, photography had come a long way right. from 1898 to 1931. And it was photographed again. And the same thing happened. It became a it was developed and it became a, a, a positive image, what we call a photographic negative, but it became a positive image. And Secundo Pia, luckily, fortunately, was still around. And he so he was vindicated. Um, but, but I mean, that's just one of the mysteries. How is it possible for this image to be, to be in this? It, that's impossible when photography wasn't invented, you know, until the mid, I guess the mid eight, mid to late 1800s. Um, that's only one of the mysteries. And what's even something that I just learned about a month ago that just actually blew my mind is the shroud itself, the image, it's, it's such a, it sits on top of the cloth. It does not go into the cloth. And you can literally scrape the image off with like a, a razor blade. 
But over time, the, the, the actual image is fading. This image is actually fading. Right. But the photographic negative image is not fading. Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. That one. Yeah, that, that is that interesting. One to me. Because what this does and what the Museum of the Bible exhibit's going to show is how all the different markings on the on the shroud, and you can see them so perfectly in the positive image, they literally mirror the Gospels. They mirror the, the passion of Jesus Christ. Every mark that he endured that are, that are written about in the Gospels are shown, are seen on the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> so it's it's pretty amazing also. It is amazing, yeah. And, and, in, and this is the type of thing that if you're at the Museum of the Bible uh, in Washington, D.C., anytime from uh, February, uh, was, is February 26th, correct? February 26th is the official grand opening. Uh, there's a private opening. Actually, it's to the public uh, the evening of right. February 23rd. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, the evening of February 23rd, there's kind of a, a, a little opening. But the grand opening with many of the leading shroud experts, uh, including uh, one of them is on our board, Russ Brio. Um, there are going to be four speakers that are going to blow people's minds away. And you get to see the um, exhibit. And there's a VIP reception afterwards. Um, so um, the February 26th grand opening is really worth seeing if you happen to be in town. You have to go on the uh, Museum of the Bible website and, uh, and buy a ticket to it. But uh, basically, it's, it's going to be something that is going to make a, a lot of waves and it's going to generate a lot of press. And um, the way I look at the Shroud of Turin, it's the, it's the Doubting Thomas of our time. Ooh, that's you know, a, for, yeah. for those who are not familiar with Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas didn't believe that, that Christ had been resurrected and Jesus showed him the wounds on his hand. And then he decided he was going to believe. But Jesus said to him, you know, bless are those that, that uh, believe and, and don't see the, right. the wounds <laughs> uh, right in their face, like, like, doubting, like Jesus showed Doubting Thomas, who got the name Doubting Thomas. Uh, but I believe that this shroud is the doubting Thomas of our time, and it brings people to faith. I mean, there are countless stories of how when people see the shroud uh, and learn about the shroud. They say, wow, how can this be anything else but the authentic burial cloth of Jesus based on uh, the, the, the mysteries that are that are on this cloth? And by the way, we should mention, too, um, you can go to the museumofthebible.org and you can eventually make your way around to where the mystery and faith is part of, uh, it's part of the exhibits under mystery and faith, uh, the Shroud of Turin. This is open from February 26th until July 31st. So it's not something that, oh gosh, I'm going to miss it because I'll be in Washington in, you know, March or April. So I'm going to miss this exhibit. No, no, no. This is going to be an exhibit that's going to be open for about um, uh, four solid months. Uh, you know, March, April, uh, May, June, July, actually five solid and, months. End of July, yeah, July 31st. Yeah. Five solid months. So anytime, if you're in Washington anytime or around Washington anytime, you will be able to go to the Museum of the Bible and and see the exhibit about the Shroud of Turin that uh, sign, uh, signfromgod.org is um, helping to organize. Now, uh, you know, uh, this isn't the first time that you've been at the Museum of the Bible, right? Um, I've visited it, you know, many times. Oh, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, Sign from God has done other work at, at, at the Museum oh, yes. of the Bible. Oh, yes. No, we have. Um, there have been other um, shroud events uh, leading up to this exhibit. Um, in fact, what happened is the exhibit was supposed to have opened February of 2021. 
Um, Gee, but, I wonder um, why. I yeah. wonder why. I wonder why it got postponed. <laughs> yeah, because the museum was closed. Right. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> like everything was. Um, so it got delayed a year. But in uh, January of 2020, uh, we had a big shroud event, um, kind of getting people excited for what was going to happen the following year. And then this past October 9th, uh, we had another shroud event uh, with speakers. And this is getting people excited about what's now going to be opening up in February. Um, so Sign from God has been uh, sponsors of some of those events. And in fact, uh, Sign from God is one of the sponsors of the, of the February 26th opening also. Uh, which means I'm going to be giving out these posters. We're going to be giving out these uh, amazing posters that explain the shroud and all about it. Oh, and, wow. um, what this does is it, it actually identifies all the different marks and, and what they mean. Um, so if you come to this grand opening, you'll get one of these beautiful posters um, that we, we just, what Cypher of God does is we just try to promote education about the shroud of Turin. That's, that's all we do. We just get people to understand. And the more people understand about the shroud, the more they learn about it, the more they learn about all the mysteries that cannot be explained. They say, wow, <laughs> maybe this really is. Maybe this really proves Jesus was in fact alive and was, and was I believe, resurrected. I mean, exactly. I mean, even if you're, even if you're not necessarily a full believer in the authenticity of the shroud of Turin, this is the type of information that will help you at least get a grip as to what the current science is, what the current, um, I don't know if you'd call it archaeology, but uh, the current, um, the current uh, historical record is on the Shroud of Turin, give you a lot of uh, great context. I think most people, you know, Myra, maybe you can just talk about your own particular um experience with this, your own personal experience with this. But I think a lot of people are already familiar with the Shroud of Turin, but don't know much about it, right? right. A, a mile right. wide, an inch deep. And, and that's not to right. knock people who, because, you know, most people don't immerse themselves in the, into this type of thing anyway. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, I think just necessarily it's a, it's a mile wide, an inch deep. And that's what this exhibit and what signfromgod.org is, is helping to, is helping right. to improve. Well, sometimes people have never heard of it. Other times people have heard of it and they just say, oh, it's fake. Um, because it's so easy to dismiss that it's fake because that's what happened after they did the uh, the, the carbon dating. Uh, basically, you know, it's like, okay, it's fake. Put it in a closet. It's done, finished. Um, but then over time, um, there were a lot of scientists that said, whoa, this, this dating is <laughs> very, very controversial. Um, and then of course there's been uh, times in Turin where the Shroud of Turin goes on display. The Shroud of Turin lives in Turin. Um, it's lived there since the 1500s. Uh, it does not travel, which is why I always have to say this exhibit is about the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin will not be there. Um, but there, there are many exciting interactive high-tech displays and exhibitions as part of this exhibit. Um, it's very high-tech and, and very interactive. Um, so it's a very modern exhibit, uh, which will also make it you know, also, um, you know, very exciting for people to uh, to go to for all for all ages. Uh, and EWTN, uh, I don't know if, how many of your uh, viewers are familiar with EWTN. It's a it's a Catholic um, cable network and it's worldwide, and it's very popular. And they're going to be doing a lot of broadcasting um, about the shroud, a lot of content having to do with the shroud. Uh, but the shroud isn't just Catholic. I mean, it's it's owned. It used to be owned by the by the King of Italy. But in the 1980s, it, it is now owned by what they call the Holy See, 
which is you know basically whoever the pope is um so it's owned by by the catholic church but it's not a catholic icon and it, it, it is for everybody jesus is not catholic even though my father my jewish father would say you know i asked him what religious is jesus he said jesus is catholic uh no jesus <laughs> is not catholic um well jesus... speaking as a catholic i you know <laughs> I, I, I'd like to endorse your father's. I'm just kidding around. I'm just just kidding around. But but the point is, the shroud is not Catholic. The shroud is no. for everybody, just like the Bible is for everyone. Um, and, well, and that's you that's know, sort of. I mean, that's, that's sort of what the Vatican. That's that, that's how the Vatican approaches all of its, um, you know, all of its stewardship of of art and historical objects. I mean, you go to the Vatican Museum, you can see most of them. They position themselves as stewards you know they're not really owners they're stewards of this of these materials so that they can ensure you know proper scholarly and popular access to them and um and so yeah i mean the shroud of turin i think is probably the most well-known of those um it is it, it's the it's the most studied and well-known artifact um you know in the world and one thing i like to say is the museum of the bible being the museum of the bible um is taking no position one way or the other about right. the authenticity. Um, they're just, you know, laying out, um, you know, how the shroud mirrors the gospels through all these different interactive high-tech exhibits, you know, it's history, it's impact. Um, so it, they're, they're being as, as balanced as they possibly can be uh, because that's really how they are um, on everything. Right. All, everything that you see in the Museum of the to take a position, uh, they, they just try to show you, um, artifacts and um and just tell stories and and how the bible has impacted um you know the world and you could say the shroud of turin has also impacted the world if it particularly if it in fact is proof that jesus christ you know lived died was tortured crucified and you know and was resurrected, resurrected. yeah um and that's what makes that's what makes the shroud of turin so I'll, I'll say hot <laughs> hot well, I mean, so intriguing like, so fascinating you know yes so you don't have to be a true believer it's intriguing and fascinating go see go see the exhibit at the museum of the bible um in that five month period if for no other reason just to satisfy your curiosity and your desire to be at least in the know as to what the actual status of the shroud of turin is what its actual history is um, what the actual science says. And you can do that thanks to signfromgod.org. That's Myra Khan Adams is the executive director of signfromgod.org. You can go there to find out about it. You can go to museumofthebible.org to find out about it. Uh, and again, that opens on February 26th and it runs through July 31st. And so you're going to have plenty of opportunities multiple opportunities hopefully to go in and see the exhibit myra khan adams thanks so much for being with us today thanks for having me ed i appreciate it good luck with your podcast thank you very much myra when we come back we'll have more at the ed morrissey show